Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to episode 124 of the Feeling Good podcast. Today we have part two of the 10 common errors that, uh, actually the second 10 common most errors, most common errors uh, that uh, therapists make. Before we start, could you briefly also give us a some uh, housekeeping information, like upcoming workshops and so on. Thank you, uh, Fabrice. And by the way, if any listeners are look are overseas and wanting some some therapy and they can't get this in India or Japan or China or France, uh, what should they do? Would you be available? They, I would be available. Email me, Fabrice at life.net. My uh, address uh, should be on the in the show notes. Fabulous. Thank you. Um, I, have I think we have like 20 people listening to us in France. Yeah. We, we, we need to increase that Well, number. at least one of them's got to be depressed. I don't know. <laughs> well, they've got those great French croissants. That's enough to make anyone happy. Croissant with orange marmalade and butter, a cup of coffee in the morning. So anyway, I have a workshop, and, I don't, and I'm not even sure when this will be published, but February 10th, a one-day workshop... With my 2019. Co- huh? February 10th, 2019. Yeah, 2019 on um, uh, ending habits and addictions. Yeah. And, and you, you can do it, come to the workshop. Uh, it's sold out in person, but we still have a few slots available online. And you'll learn how to treat your, your patients' addictions and habits, but also you can heal your own habits and addictions during, during that workshop. And, and the link to, for registration is on my website, uh, in my workshop ta- tab, www.feelinggood.com slash workshops. And then you can find all my upcoming workshops. In May 19th, Jill Levitt and I are going to give a similar one day, uh, program on uh, t- Team CBT for Anxiety Disorders, Step-by-Step Training for Therapists. Um, and again, you can learn to treat your patients or your own anxiety. And uh, you can come in person, because that one hasn't sold out yet in person, because we just started advertising it. So move fast if you want to attend in Palo Alto in person. Yeah. But you can go from anywhere in the world live streaming, and we'll have people online helping you and supervising your small group exercises. Ah, great. And then I have two summer intensives, one in Canada in uh, July 15th through 18, and one in uh, South San Francisco Conference Center, July 29 to August 1, 2019. And if you want to go to one of these wonderful four-day intensives, go to my website, feelinggood.com, and you'll find the, the links on my web, my workshop page. Great. So on to the next most common error. Um, so you said that confusing psychoeducation with psychotherapy. And uh, I have to say that I use psychoeducation all the time. Uh, I find that people who come to see me often don't really know how their mind is working. Yeah. And uh, a lot of times they're just flabbergasted. You, know, you mean... 
I I feel the way I think. Oh my God! And, yeah, uh, right. And just just knowing that um, makes them feel like well, they can do something about it. Like uh, it it's empowering. So. Yeah. And of course, I'm all for that. I wrote Feeling Good, and I've written so many psychoeducational books for the general public. And sometimes, you know, research has shown that they can have a real mood-elevating effect. Uh, so I don't mean to, to knock psychoeducation, but it's it's not the same as, as, as psychotherapy. It can be a part of, of psychotherapy, but you need much more than that. And what I'm referring to, uh, for example, there's a lot of uh, hospitals uh, who, and they try to have groups for on the psychiatric units. And so mm -hmm. they'll typically have a group, like an hour-long group, and, and they'll teach them the, the 10 cognitive distortions. Yeah. And that's useful to, to people. But it's not psychotherapy in, in the sense that just finding out about these dis distortions isn't going to cure anyone of a troubled marriage or a suicidal depression or a, a drug addiction or, or, or whatever, a panic Panic, panic disorder. You, you need much more than than just that. But I think people are looking for something simple that they can do that isn't too hard to learn as as a teacher or as a therapist. And uh, they they sometimes think, well, that's a psychotherapy group. That's an hour long psychotherapy group. And it, it's not really. It's just a psychoeducation group for therapy. You you have to find out what the person is thinking. What are the thoughts that are making them feel worthless or panicky or, or angry, and then uh, use a, a pretty complex process to help them turn that around and, and, and recover. It's, it's really, I think, quite challenging to, to learn psychotherapy. It would be like confusing. Maybe you could give a, uh, learn how to give, say, a flu shot real quickly. You could learn that quickly, but that's not the same as learning how to be an open-heart surgeon. Okay. All right. Well, I I would just say, for me, this is my own personal take on it. I think it is part of psychotherapy. It helps people understand what we're doing. And it for me, it kind of moves the process along. Yeah, it creates a structure. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the, you're right. The uh, understanding is, is vitally important. We have so much fabulous psychoeducation within team therapy, even mm -hmm. within the old cognitive, cognitive therapy. And those insights, those discoveries can be, can be mind blowing. Even when I was running the Stanford inpatient groups, just handing out my list of 23 common self-defeating beliefs and have them circle like perfectionism, perceived perfectionism, approval addiction, achievement addiction. Fresh fire fallacy, just having the patient circle those things, they, they thought, oh, this is tremendous. I didn't realize that I'm upset because I have perceived perfectionism or yeah. perfectionism or something. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't want to minimize the value of, yeah. of that. Our next uh, error is uh, the belief in gurus. Um, so, you know, a guru in psychotherapy being somebody who starts a school of uh, therapy, like, let's see team <laughs> yeah that's right well it's not uh, a team a school of psychotherapy but it is somebody trying to start something to make an impact yeah so it would be the same the same issue well this you know, is again a, a sensitive one and i probably sound like an old crank and i have to fi figure out a way to say this without having everybody hate me uh, be, because uh uh the I, I used to uh, really admire Albert Ellis uh, because he was honest. He didn't steal from other people. 
And uh, although we didn't have much interaction, what I saw of him, I, I, I really liked. He was a cranky guy. He was eccentric, but he was fantastic. And he made beautiful contributions. And, and because I always sang his praises, when, whenever I'd attend a banquet that he was at, they'd, they'd seat me next to him because they, yeah. they knew he liked me because I was always <laughs> praise, praising mm-hmm. him. And, um, he was, he was a, he was a character. I, I, I really loved him. He was fantastic. He was, he was very limited in a way. Um, but he did this one thing really, really well. But he used to tell me that he had known personally most of the famous names in the 20th century, uh, psychiatry and psychology. The, the really famous people, the Fritz Pearls, the, uh, who, uh, who was the empathy guy? Carl Rogers. Carl Rogers and, and, and uh, Rollo May, yeah, all, all of those, all, all of those guys, including the ones that were famous at that that time. And Abraham were, Maslow, uh, yeah, yeah, and the people even now who who are big name people. And he used to tell me, you know, David, they're a bunch of crooks. They're a bunch of sociopaths. They're they're sick puppies. And he would tell me about like the horrible things that the the various the various ones had done and he he was really good at seeing through people at first i was really shocked to to hear that uh, that they were narcissistic and exploitative and 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 dishonest and uh, trying to deceive people with with their with their data stealing from other other people just nasty uh, and uh, but as i reflected on the ones that i have known uh, I, I began to see uh, it was ringing through. And I can see in myself, too, you know, I have uh, narcissistic tendencies that, that get me into trouble uh, sometimes, and I, I try to, to fight against that as, you know, as hard as I can, sometimes successfully and sometimes not very successfully. But it, it just... You must it, have had a difficult childhood. <laughs> yes, I, I did, <laughs> as a matter of fact. But... Um, it, it 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 it's a shocker because people idolize the people who, like if you're in DBT you'll idolize the person who started DBT if you're in EMDR you might idolize the person who started that if you're in cognitive therapy you might idolize a back or if you're rational emotive you'll idolize a, 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 a an Albert Alice and, and and on and on and you see these people in this very positive light and they're generally very charming and very effective. At, at making themselves appear like 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 a wonderful person, but uh, uh, often they have a slimy uh, uh, underbelly that that's pretty pretty unattractive. But people don't like to hear this uh, because it sounds cynical. It sounds holier than thou. It sounds petty. It sounds mean spirited. But I say it because I I think a it is true and and b it it's important and that's why I think we should not have schools of therapy based on the work of the gurus although they all had important contributions in spite of their narcissism I mean, it, but we should have a science based data driven psychotherapy should be like science you know in science it's true that there are some big names but most of the progress in science you know, like like astrophysics yeah. and quantum quantum yeah. physics and things like this we don't even know who who discovered this or that. Yeah, that's right. That's my point. That when it get, becomes a science, it moves forward. When astrophysics broke away from the Catholic Church and became a science rather than a part of a religion, 
look at what it's done. It's been fantastic. Yeah. And it's my dream that uh, psychotherapy would, would break away from all of these cults and become a science and become something awesome. Because I believe, as you know, psychotherapy can can become awesome. One of my college roommates was Phil Allen. I might have mentioned him previously in our podcast, but he had the highest SATs. You mentioned uh, Stiglitz. Yeah, yeah. Well, and Phil Allen uh, was on the same level as Stiglitz, and and he had the highest SAT scores in our class. So he got a special award. He got perfect scores on all of these aptitude tests and achievement uh, tests. And it's like his brain was from another planet, and he he majored in physics. And I, I didn't major in physics because I realized... I wasn't at that level, and yeah. could never be at that level. And Phil is now a solid-state physicist in Stony Brook, New York. He's he's world-renowned, and he he's solving quantum equations that takes the fastest computers a full month to solve the the equation. Yeah, the, the, to to simulate, you know, to get the the rate mm -hmm. constants mm -hmm. uh, on on quantum. Things and he, he's doing some fantastically important thing, but he is the humblest guy you'd ever want to meet, and he, he's just kind and and, and humble. Practically, practically bring tears to my eyes, and and, and that that's what real real science is. But you know, there there's still a cult of the the personality. I see this in conferences. Yeah, um, uh, a few years ago, Salvador Minuchin. I don't know if if I've you've heard met of him. him. Yeah. Uh, he's like a family therapy um, guru, really. Yeah. And uh, and he was in his 80s, I think, at the time. And he came to talk to a standing room only um, auditorium. And he said, uh, you know, he had like this accent. And I don't know. Well, there's quite a bunch of you here. You're coming to see me here because your friend's going to crook. <laughs> yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Yeah. All right. Next one is um, the you know we're we're back on the on the scientific thing and the statistical thing, the backward statistical reasoning. Yeah, so, this it, is something my wife turned me on to when she was doing her PhD in clinical psychology, and there's a there's a name for it, but I, I can I can bring it to life for you. The, the way it works is this: see, therapists. There's something called the clinician's illusion, where therapists reason from what's in front of them, and they come to wrong conclusions because of that. So it, it, let's say you're treating patients with borderline personality disorder. That This is one of the most severe disorders, and it's a form of depression, but it's also associated often with patients who are manipulative. Uh, they they yeah. do self-mutilation. They make frequent suicide threats, and that can be very disturbing to therapists to, to learn how to work with them skillfully and, and effectively. Well, something like, you know, 50% of them or 60% of them will will say that they had childhood sexual abuse. And so therapists almost universally conclude that childhood sexual abuse causes borderline uh, personality disorder. Um, if, if, if you work with patients with multiple personality well, disorder, 99% will say they've, they've had sex, sexual abuse. 
So isn't isn't that kind of like the the reverse of the one we talked about last yeah. time? The the theory. Yes, yeah, that type that it's it's that type of of thing. But this is a little bit more precise be, because uh, you, you you see you can actually calculate the the the, the causal effect of se- childhood sexual abuse on borderline personality disorder just by looking at the uh, incidence of both in the population. Yeah, and the ins- and uh, I don't know the precise formula, but it's intuitively simple to grasp. It's something like the the prob- the the number of people in in our culture who have childhood sexual abuse is about one hundred times greater than the than the incidence of people with borderline personality disorder. Yeah, and so uh, the, what that means is that only one in a hundred people. Who have sexual abuse develop borderline right. personality disorder, and so the correct conclusion is that borderline personality disorder is is practically never caused by childhood sexual abuse. Yeah, and that there are other other factors. Let's call them unknown factors for for the, for the moment yeah. that that are really really causing it. And I, I just think that's a, f- a fascinating thing because therapists don't know this, and and they they think that you know. They can reason from what their patients are telling them about about the causes of things, and then what makes it even worse is that uh, when they hear that uh, childhood sexual abuse is not an important cause of borderline personality disorder or multiple personality disorder or whatever, they they get angry and, and defiant because they don't want to have their their belief challenged. The the time I heard this spelled out fantastically was that radio show from Berkeley that that I was on once, and you've asked me to get on it again. It's a public broadcasting radio show on kind of critical thinking. There's some guy up there. He's he's really brilliant. I think you know who he is. You're thinking about uh, Hidden Brain. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. think yeah, and, yeah, and Sean he, Carver downtime. He's yeah, great, I, yeah, I heard one of his podcasts on this, and the, the research and just completely debugging these yeah. these favored psychological uh, theories. Are you familiar with the research on ACEs, adverse childhood experiences? Only one study I, I, I read there. There's one here. What? Tell us what, what you're familiar um, with. So they, they have shown correlations, strong correlations between adverse childhood experiences. And those are, I don't know exactly what the list is, but, you know, childhood neglect, trauma, poverty, um, Living in in uh, you know low socioeconomic uh, areas and things like this, and there's a strong correlation between ACEs, correcting for all other factors, with um, um, diseases like cardiovascular diseases, oh. and mental illnesses, uh, of course, um, lower earnings, and uh, and one of the the factors that they have shown to be a great mit- mitigating factor is early childhood education. So if you can send your child to preschool, kindergarten, it makes an extreme difference. Oh, that's that's fascinating. That's great. I love that, uh, Fabrice. I, I have one here. The, this uh, says uh, se- several studies have shown that a diagnosis of borderline personality disorder, I'm quoting from a published study, mm-hmm. is associated with childhood abuse and neglect more than any other Personality d- d- disorders. Uh, to, to to look into this, yeah. says Widom and collaborators followed 500 children who had suffered physical and sexual abuse and neglect, 
and 396 matched controls, in other words, children who didn't have neglect, and they observed that the presence of a risk factor such as adverse childhood events was not necessary or sufficient to explain the reason why some individuals develop borderline personality disorder symptoms Mm -hmm. in adulthood, whereas others, others did not. And I just love this kind of uh, kind of research because it it it, it keeps us keeps keeps us humble and keeps us from jumping to convenient conclusions that that fit our, our preconceptions. But the study that you quoted would would seem to be leaning in the opposite direction. So I think we say there's kind of an well, open book on this, but except that um, the the results of adverse childhood experiences are not. That specific, it's not just borderline personality disorder, but it's oh, yeah. a host of oh, yeah. mental yeah. problems. Yeah. So you could say that maybe it creates a, a more fragile uh, person who is then more likely to be the victim of, of one of those illnesses. Yeah. Uh, but which one it is could be completely random or dependent on other factors. Yep. Yep. Um, we have two more, right? Yes. Yeah, so here's one that's about uh, mental disorders, since we're talking about mental disorders. And it's the belief in mental disorders. So we, we just talked for you know 10 minutes about borderline personality disorder. Yeah. And uh, do you not believe in it? Okay. Well, this is, <laughs> this is great. And the question here is, do mental disorders exist? Yes. Just to get, give it catchy, I'll probably put that in the title for, for the show to attract attention. Thomas Saws, who I'm sure you're familiar yes. with, uh, wrote a book, The Myth of Mental Illness. Yeah. It must have been 30, 40 years ago, I would yeah. think, or more. Uh, and he argued that, you know, mental illnesses are not really mental illnesses. It's, it's kind of a myth. It's just the, the creation of you know, p- people's symptoms are just expressions of how they they feel and certain conflicts in their life and, and soft stuff. Um, and I feel that there is some some truth and some error in Saws's Saws's position. I think that that there. I think he went too far, and I I, I think that most of what's in the DSM is just made up disorders, and I'll explain why in a, in a second. But there are at least three or four true mental illnesses that are brain based on abnormal brain tissue of of, of some kind, and one would be schizophrenia. Uh, is is distinctly different, uh, where people are hallucinating and having delusions. It's it's not a variant of of normal human ex- experience. It's a true and tragic mental illness. Uh, there's some derangement in in, in the the neuron neurons and how they connect in the brain. And hopefully one of these days we'll we'll get the the, the cause of that. I, they may be getting close to the cause of of it and. Maybe even find a cure or a way to a way to prevent it, but it's it's horrible. It's a real mental illness. Bipolar one, the full blown manic depressive illness, where people get high and psychotic. Mm-hmm. If you've ever seen that, you know that's a true a true uh, mental illness. Of course, Alzheimer's d- disease is, is a true brain yeah. brain disorder, and the pathology is becoming quite quite clear. But most of what's in the DSM are, are just made up things. For example, uh, I often ask audiences, how many of you worry about things from time to time? And uh, pretty much 100% of the hands go up. 
And then I say, how many days of continuous worrying do you have to have, according to the DSM, to have the brain disease called uh, uh, generalized anxiety yeah, yeah. disorder? And then generally, if you have 200 people in the audience, no one will know. And no. there's only one criterion for that disorder in the DSM. And it's the most common uh, anxiety disorder or psychiatric disorder in the world is this worrying called generalized anxiety disorder. And the criterion is you have to worry about uh, one or two, you know, at least two things, more days than not for at least six months. So yeah. on, on midnight uh, of the day that it comes six months of where you have a brain disease, you didn't have five minutes earlier. Well, that's just nonsensical thinking. There is no such thing as generalized anxiety disorder. What psychiatrists do is they're just taking people who worry the most. See, it's a bell-shaped curve. Some people are happy-go-lucky, and they rarely worry. And then there's a mound in the middle, the average, the average worrying that people do. And then up toward the top, you've got the people who are the 15% top of the worrying group there. They, they worry more than 85% of the population. And psychiatrists say, we'll call that generalized anxiety disorder. And then we can uh, tell people they have a, a mental disorder and we can treat it with, with, with pills. That, that's, that's the whole logic behind the thing, but it doesn't exist. Uh, there's no such thing as a generalized anxiety disorder. And that's true of, uh, I would say, 90% of, of what's in the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, well, DSM. I think there's there may be a little bit of a misleading argument in, in what you're saying, because you, you seem to say that the fact that the six-month duration is the the problem there? I don't think that's the case. Like for example, in uh, for PTSD, you need to have the symptoms uh, at least four weeks after the traumatic event happened. That makes perfect sense to me. Now, why four weeks rather than five or six? That's you know splitting hairs. But if if you if the symptoms happen and then disappear, it's not PTSD. Meaning you don't have any any persistent, you know, flashbacks or, or, um, you know, remaining trauma sequelae. So there's a reason to have a particular duration. Well, uh, I'll tell you, that's a great point that you make. And, and what they, the, the, the original criteria were, you see, this was not developed as, as a clinical tool, the DSM that's originally. Right. It was developed as a research tool so people could select if you want to do research on anxiety and worrying yeah. so that we can have research criteria to select people at a very high level of severity so then others can try to replicate our, our research. Yeah. But what happened over time, it, 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 we, instead of saying people who are, are severe worriers, we, they, they began to use the noun language that they have a mental d disorder. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's where I have a bone of contention. Yeah. You, you could have a DSM based on continuous variables, not dichotomy things. See, a dichotomous variables where you, you have it or you don't yeah, have it. Exactly. And yeah, then you right. have to create a totally arbitrary right. cutoff point yeah. so you can make your, your diagnoses. Yeah. And, and, and I would prefer and I think it would be vastly more powerful for research and vastly more effective for, for, for clinical work is simply to be able to tell people, oh, you have a lot of social anxiety, you're, you're very shy, uh, or you do a lot of uh, worrying, uh, your, your, your score on the worrying test is, is up in the, in the, at, the high, at the high range, and we can work on that and help you get over your worrying, 
and, and become more peaceful and confident if that's what you'd like. But we're, we're treating symptoms, not, not mental, mental disorders. Okay. Well, oh, and I would also say that here, this isn't necessarily the commonest therapeutic error either, because non-MDs are less likely to assign these diagnoses and believe they're, they're real. They're, you know, transdiagnostic therapy, which is a big mushy word that simply means treating people for where they're hurting rather than treating so-called disorders or yeah. diagnoses is, is, is very popular now. And I would say it's probably more among psychiatrists where, where you see the belief in the, uh, the, the mental, mental di disorders. But I would say SAWS was like 80% co correct. Most things that are called mental disorders are, are myths, myths, but it's not entirely the case. Which brings me to the next one. And the final one? Which is ignoring a diagnostic evaluation. Right. So if there's no, if there's no disorders, why even diagnose them? Exactly, exactly. Now Burns is talking out of both sides of his, of his mouth. Well, th this will be partly a, a commercial uh, message as well. But since I was trained in research, psychiatric research, before I even went into clinical practice, mm -hmm. I, I had to do a lot of diagnostic interviewing. And I always hated it because we had to go through these structured interviews to, to assign diagnoses so we could publish research articles in scientific yeah. journals. And it, it took two, three, four hours, and it was just a miserable experience. But I always felt it was important to know what my patient's suffering was, what, what are all the so-called disorders they have, whether or not you call them disorders. If what person says has had trauma and has the symptoms of PTSD, you want to know that and treat it. And if someone's depressed, you want to know that and, and treat it. And so what I came up with for my own solution is I, I developed, I worked about 10 years of research at Stanford, I would say developing what I call the easy diagnostic system. And it's a survey you can give your patients at the initial evaluation to take on their own. They, they can fill it out in less than an hour on their own, and they hand it to you. And it automatically diagnoses 50 or 60 of the most common DSM so-called disorders. It's not present, possibly present, or definitely present, and definite mild, definite moderate, or definite uh, severe. And you just page through it, and then there's a diagnostic summary sheet, and it takes about five minutes, maybe seven or eight minutes, and you just tick off all, all the diagnoses, and then you can put that in, in your chart, and you have a, a valid, reliable, accurate diagnostic assessment. It doesn't take a lot of time to do it. And I think that is worth doing, not because you're diagnosing all these mental disorders, but you're finding out the different patterns of suffering that the patient has. And so typically, the pa most patients will have at least one Mood disorder like, like depression, like a ma major depression or, or chronic depression, so-called dysthymic disorder. Uh, most of my patients will have one or two or three so-called anxiety disorders, like they'll have symptoms of OCD or phobias or, uh, panic attacks. Uh, they'll, they'll typically have several of the so-called personality dis disorders. And uh, not unusual for them to have one or two or three areas of substance abuse or addictions of, of various kinds. And you want to know they have these patterns of suffering because it can affect, affect your treatment, even if you don't think of them as disorders. 
Uh, and I can remember one time when I didn't do this because I used to hate, this was before I had my easy diagnostic system, I used to hate going through these time-consuming diagnostic interviews. And I had this attorney uh, that, that I was treating, and again, I, I might have mentioned this on a previous podcast, I can't remember anymore, but he was the sweetest guy in the world. He was kind of depressed and he, he seemed to really like me. We hit it off great and, and he responded really, really well to the therapy. But then he would come back and, and, and he's, and he was apparently would develop hallucinations and delusions. Uh, and he would see like insects trying to get into his room at night, giant insects and things like this. And I couldn't understand what, what what was what was happening? I was just t- totally totally puzzled. Uh, I couldn't figure it out. Then one day he asked me. He says, "Is is it okay? Is there anything wrong with drinking like about two fifths of gin a day?" Uh, he had DT. And, and, huh? <laughs> he had DT. Not not not. It wasn't it wasn't quite that bad, but it was uh, alcohol uh, paranoid uh, syndrome that you okay. can get from uh, alcohol. And I hadn't given him the diagnostic. If I'd give, if I'd had my easy diagnostic, mm-hmm. he 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 wasn't denying anything. He would have ticked off all that he's drinking, and I would have seen that at the initial evaluation, and 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 been able to 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 intervene. But because I I just wanted to do treatment, I've always loved doing treatment, hated doing diagnosis. I I, I skipped that step, and then and then I got. I got stung from it. And, and also other things that you pick up in the easy diagnostic system, it really screens people for how suicidal they are. And you can't tell always by talking to them. It screens for violent uh, tendencies and violent plans that patients might have. And if you don't think to ask them, they won't tell you. And, and you, and you can e- easily get, get burned. So I think that, uh, it, it is a therapeutic error. I asked Jill, who, you know, I, I idolize because she's, got such common sense. And I said, do, do you use the easy with your patients? And she said, I would never have a, accept a new patient unless they were willing to fill out the easy. She said, it's absolutely invaluable. So it just, it just takes a few minutes of your time. And, and, and I think it can help you a lot clinically, even though if you don't believe these are, are brain disorders, which I don't believe for the most part, but there, there are certainly problems that people have that, that need to be addressed. And if what, if people want to use the easy, what uh, do they need to do? They can find an order form on my website. I'll try to put a link in the show notes too. Okay. Yeah. Well, that sounds very good. Uh, and that concludes our show on the ten, the second ten most um, errors uh, that therapists make. Well, thank you, Fabrice. And tell me now, how how did we do on that? Was that too uh, cynical of a show? Or people going to hate us? Or was there right. any value in it? You know, I think we, we make waves every time. And so just better get used to it. Okay, great. Thanks. All right. Thanks, David. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com, where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. 
I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. Thank you.